Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Thursday, February 18, and today we're going to brief you on the Billa Wheeler family story, why the small Queensland town wants the Sri Lankan family back. They came here, they become interwoven in the fabric of our community here, and that's why we just so badly want them home. Yeah, this week, a federal court decision was the only thing that stopped the family of four being flown straight back to Sri Lanka. It's really just a, a complete moral failure of the Australian, of, of the government policy in this respect. The Billawila family story explained in just a moment on The Briefing First. Annika Smethurst is here, starting today's news with a breaking story about Facebook. Yes, Tom, this story is just breaking as we record this podcast Facebook has announced it'll block Australian news content. Yeah, this is massive news. It's a response to the government's push to pass laws that will force Facebook and Google to share money with Australian news media companies. Facebook posted an article that says, in response to Australia's proposed new bargaining law, Facebook will restrict publishers and people in Australia from sharing or viewing Australian or international news content. Yeah, they say they're doing this with a heavy heart and it's because the proposed laws misunderstand the relationship between Facebook and the news publishers. They argue in this article that it's actually the news companies who benefit most from their relationship with Facebook. Google has taken a very different approach. It recently signed deals with 9-7 and News Corp in the lead-up to these laws that are expected to pass this week. These deals will see Australian content reportedly put on integrated products like Google Showcase, where you can get news from different publishers in the same place. News Corp says its deal will also mean more investment in journalism on YouTube. Yeah, and News Corp say their deal's worth a significant amount and the Nine deal is supposed to be worth $30 million a year. Annika, what do you make of this? This is a huge move from Facebook. Yeah, and I think it actually might backfire because at the moment it's really hard to decipher, I guess, what is news for some people and what isn't news when on Facebook and when information is shared by people you know and your friends. And often that is then, I guess, given a higher ranking. If you know that you can't share actual news it's going to be pretty easy to decipher what actually is real news and what's fake news on these websites. And I think that'll actually mean people are less likely to use the social media network. Mm, But Facebook are arguing that news only makes up 4% of content people see in their news feed, so that news is actually a small part of the reason people use Facebook. I mean, clearly Facebook are worried that if this legislation goes ahead... They'll be having to share revenue, not just here in Australia, but if other countries pass similar laws, are sharing revenue all around the world. And I guess the proposition for Facebook is quite different to Google because it's a completely different service. Yeah, that does seem to be the fear behind where this is coming from. They're worried that it will set a precedent. Australia really is going out sort of um, ahead of the pack in doing this. And they've got to fight this first, I guess, uh, you know, curbing of their um, rights because if they don't fight this one, you will see other countries line up. So it really is a test case here in Australia. How do you think the government will react? I think they'll stand strong. They've been pretty consistent on this. Um, They've obviously come to some sort of deal with Google. So it really is Facebook out there alone at the moment. And they did have more power when they were acting as, I guess, a collective against the government's legislation. We do see details now that Google have had some sort of, uh, I guess, consultation and negotiation with the media companies and with the government. So it really is a fight which Facebook's going to be taking on alone at this stage. 
And there have been two shock exits in the Australian Open quarterfinals. An incredible match last night. Stefano Tsitsipas pulled off an epic comeback to defeat Rafael Nadal, the world number two. Um, the Greek tennis star fought from two sets down in a four-hour battle. I'm speechless. I have um, no words to describe what just happened out on the court. I started very nervous, I won't lie. But um, I don't know what happened after the third set. I just, uh, I fly like a little bird. Wasn't it crazy, Annika? I watched the first two sets and Nadal was just dominating. Yeah, I set up to the third and it went to a tiebreaker and I thought, oh, it looks like he might be in a little bit of trouble. But I just thought Nadal might be able to hold on, but it wasn't to be. Nadal was absolutely firing. He just wasn't showing any signs of stopping. Yeah. Four hours later and a shock result, another shock result was Ash Barty. She was crushed by Karolina Mukova, who also um, launched a massive comeback. She was um, down a set and a break. And then after a medical timeout, came back to win 6-1, 3-6, 2-6. But in good news for Australia, Dylan Alcott took out the quad wheelchair singles. That's his seventh title in a row. Good on you, Dylan. Victoria is now officially out of its third lockdown. Yesterday, Premier Dan Andrews announced there were no new cases, with most of the restrictions easing off uh, at midnight last night. Four reasons to leave your home falls away. The five-kilometre limit on travel falls away as well. That's no longer in place. Masks, however, will be required indoors and outdoors where you cannot physically distance. 3,400 close contacts linked to that Holiday Inn cluster have been made to isolate. Now, that's around 66 close contacts per case. So, Annika, is it possible to say now in hindsight that they did need that circuit breaker to reach all those close contacts? Look, this is something you're never going to be able to prove, but it was something the Premier has been grilled on this week, whether every time there's a handful of cases, the whole state needs to be shut down. There's people that, of course, cancelled weddings and plants and you know, were stuck in the state because they couldn't leave because of a few cases. So, look, we'll never know whether that was the right decision. It's obviously we've managed to get on top of it now. Was it necessary? I don't know. Yeah, well, the good news is um, Melbourne is getting back to normal. There'll be crowds at the tennis from today, 50% capacity, which will be great. And the man behind uh, the cluster, the so-called Patient X, is calling for a federal inquiry into hotel quarantine. He told Sky he repeatedly declared his nebulizer and was told he could use it. I think there needs to be a federal inquiry into hotel quarantine in Victoria um, there's obviously a local inquiry, but I think that we need someone outside the state of Victoria to look into this. And while Victoria is out of lockdown, we will have to wait until next Friday for some of those restrictions to ease. That's the full 14-day incubation period from when these cases first emerged. So when does uh, Annika Smethurst-Hens night get back on the... <laughs> I don't know. I'm running out of weeks now, Tom, so hopefully I'll be able to do something before my wedding. How long to the wedding? Four weeks. Do you worry that these restrictions are going to kick in again and ruin the big day? Not so worried because I am getting married technically in New South Wales, just outside of Canberra, and Gladys Berejiklian doesn't seem to lock down the state in the same uh, way the Victorian government does, but I'm more worried that I might not be able to get to my own wedding should Victoria's borders fall again. And the Prime Minister Scott Morrison has announced a third review in response to allegations former staffer Brittany Higgins was raped in Parliament House. This one will examine how Parliament supports its staff and will be done independently at arm's length from the government. Earlier this week, he commissioned twin reviews into complaints handling and parliamentary office culture. That one will be run by a WA Liberal MP 
and another by a senior executive at the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Yeah, so interesting that this new review will be um, done independently. That came after criticism uh, about uh, Scott Morrison appointing a WA Liberal MP on that other review. Brittany Higgins has also come out saying that the Prime Minister has been using victim-blaming rhetoric. She also wants the government to explain its conduct after she only found out about key elements of her own story after the story appeared in the media. Yeah, and the former staffer uh, accused of perpetrating the rape has reportedly checked himself into hospital for psychiatric care. He hasn't been charged with anything. And Pete Evans has been booted from another social media platform for sharing coronavirus misinformation. Yeah, the former celebrity chef's Instagram has been deleted two months after his Facebook was shut down for the same reason. Last week, the social media giant updated its terms of service and promised to be more proactive in shutting down conspiracy theories. Yes, well, good time to shut down misinformation on coronavirus. Bad time for Pete Evans, who recently announced he was running for the Senate, so he won't have his massive platforms to use to um, try and get into Parliament. All right, in a moment, we're talking about the Billa Wheeler family. In this briefing topic, we're going to explain the story of the family from Billow, whose emotional plight made headlines again this week after they narrowly avoided being flown from Christmas Island back to Sri Lanka. A Tamil family who'd been living at Biloela in central Queensland faces deportation. Bring them home to I would like the family to accept that they are not refugees. It's not about chasing public sediment. A Sri Lankan Tamil family has secretly been moved to Christmas Island overnight. The plane taking them back to Sri Lanka was grounded in Darwin. A Tamil family fighting deportation can remain in Australia for now after winning the latest legal battle in their long-running case. All right, so let's go back to the start. Bilo is short for Biloela. It's a small Queensland farming town in behind Gladstone and the family of four, the two parents and two young daughters aged five and three. And they're on Christmas Island in detention right now and they've been locked up in limbo on and off since the two parents arrived separately by boat eight and nine years ago. They met in detention and then they got married, settling in Billow in 2014 where they made a life. But in 2018, the government put them in detention after ruling that they wouldn't face persecution if they were sent back to Sri Lanka. Yeah, so since then, they've been moved around several different detention facilities. And then at the same time, the Billow community have been calling for them to be brought home and they've built up a fairly prominent media campaign in support of the family. This week, they were almost sent home again, but the federal court ruled the youngest daughter was denied procedural fairness in the handling of her visa application. While this means they won't be deported, they will remain in detention as this legal fight continues. So let's find out where it will go from here. Angela Fredericks is one of the family's supporters. She's a local from Biloela. Angela, thanks for joining us. You're friends with the family. You've even visited them in detention. How were they after hearing the result on Tuesday? They were actually, before the court judgment came out, they were actually surrounded once again by guards in quite a similar fashion to when they were deported in Melbourne. They actually had a plane waiting on Christmas Island to take them to Colombo. So while we had a victory, it just once again highlighted the cruelty that is being put on this family. 
tell us a little bit about when you first met the family and how they ended up in Biloela. They're the salt of the earth. They are just the most genuine, even everything they're going through, they just care so much about everyone else. And at the end of the day, you know, they came to Biloela following government instruction, you know, to go rural. They came here, they become interwoven in the fabric of our community here. And that's why we just so badly want them home. So what sort of life did they build in Biloela? Nadez, um, even prior to working out at the local abattoir, the meatworks, where we really struggle for workers, he volunteered at St Vincent's de Paul. Um, he then pushed trolleys at Woolworths. And I think that's where most people got to know them because he was the friendly trolley man who would always be there, you know, to have a chat and to wave. But he, you know, he worked out at the meatworks Priya, particularly having those girls, she became involved in going to some play groups. It's a small town, so we're always happy for families because families are what grow grow our rural towns. So what do you think should be done here? Because the government's argument is that this family don't have a genuine claim for asylum, that they wouldn't be in danger if they went back to Sri Lanka and that if we allow them to settle in Australia and have, you know, the, the sort of life that you're describing, a, a good life as part of a good community, that that would send the wrong message to, to other people in Sri Lanka considering getting on a boat and coming here. I have real issue with the Australian government stating that it's safe in Sri Lanka. For the Tamil minority, the genocide that was executed upon them at the end of the Civil War it's that same government that is now in power, the Rajapakas. So, you know, we're getting these these reports out of United Nations, out of Amnesty International, talking to people on the ground over there. And it is horrific what is going on over there at the moment. And, you know, everyone is watching human rights slowly going backwards again. The couple obviously have two young girls who have spent a lot of their life now in detention. I just wanted to ask you how they talk to their kids about this, not only the life they're living, but the uncertainty about the future and and the fact they might not go back to Billow. How do they handle that? Oh, incredible difficulty. Often when I'm talking to the family, you know, Kopika, the five-year-old, she knows that what's happening is not normal. Um, she knows they're in detention and she can't understand why why they can't just come and visit us and play with us. So Priya will often keep saying to Kopika, because she says, when are we going back to Billawilla? When are we going back to Billawilla? And Priya does just say to her, soon, we're, go- we're going to go back. You know, we will go back. But how, how do you explain to a five-year-old? What's what's going on? So, what's the strategy for the family from here? Will will they pursue other legal avenues like the High Court? Are they pinning their hopes on ministerial intervention? Where to from here? I guess we're all struggling to see how we can trust that procedural fairness will actually happen going forward. So, they're definitely considering appealing to the High Court, um, Ground One from yesterday. At the same time, they are looking at some legal avenues for Nadez as well. So there's a bit happening there, but 
ultimately no court can force the Prime Minister or the Ministers to intervene here. It is feeling quite hopeless in terms of this government. That was Angela Fredericks in Bilawila, Queensland. Let's find out what the avenues are for the family now. Greg Hansen's an expert in immigration law. Greg, why weren't they released after Tuesday's federal court decision? So in Australia, there's basically two systems. So if you're an asylum seeker and you arrive by boat, then you're, you're hit with what we call a legal bar, and that's and they prevent, they're prevented from applying for any visas, doing anything at all to sort of progress their migration situation. So, but for people that arrive by plane, they're, they're legally allowed to apply for visas. If their visa's running out, they can apply for another visa. But if you arrive by boat, then you're not allowed to apply for any visa unless the minister of the day personally makes a decision allowing you to do so. But this family, um, the mother and father, both arrived by boat. Um, so under Australian law, they're barred from applying um, for any visas. And also under the law, any children born in Australia to parents who arrive by boat are also deemed in migration law to arrive by boat as well. So you have this sort of legal fiction that it's quite sort of common in migration law where successive governments have invented these sort of legal fictions to get around the, the reality of, of the situation. So here, the very unfortunate thing is these um, the, the child who's affected by this, the full federal court decision that was handed down yesterday, she was born in Australia, but she is a boat arrival under Australian law. She arrived by boat when she was born under the Migration Act. So do they have legal avenues left like going to the high court or do they really need ministerial intervention for them to be allowed to stay? Ultimately, what they wanted from this case and why there was an appeal as well is that they want to have a protection visa considered for the youngest daughter. So uh, the federal court found that the application they lodged was invalid because of that boat bar, that bar that I was speaking about before, about affecting the child. They could apply for permission from the High Court to appeal it, where you go through a special leave process, um, and the court uh, judge of the High Court would then determine if they would want to hear that case. So, but yeah, no doubt they're very capable lawyers uh, advising them right now on their options. But at the end of the day, it's the minister who could get them out of detention and could give them a visa to have them remain in Australia as well. There's been an assessment about this case done and it was found by the Australian government at least or, or by authorities assessing refugees that they didn't, this family didn't face a risk of prosecution if they were sent back to Sri Lanka. The family don't agree with that. They say it would be unwise and risky for them to go back. Where does the truth land in this argument? And if the assessment is that it's not dangerous for them to go back, what's the argument for allowing them to stay? It's clear that they, the government's failed to assess the refugee claims of the youngest child according to law. So it was an unlawful assessment they conducted. And that was because they assessed whether or not the, the youngest daughter was a refugee without even speaking to them, without inviting any evidence, providing them any opportunity to provide any information in support of their claims and made a negative decision and then told the minister that decision and the minister relied on that unlawful decision. That's why they won their case yesterday. Now they're really stuck with where they haven't had a lawful assessment of the youngest daughter's protection claims, but legally uh, the, the minister has no obligation to do so. So they're in a bit of a sort of not a good place right now. I think a lot of people, you know, would have empathy for that perspective that this situation has dragged on for so long. The parents arrived eight or nine years mm-hmm. ago. Um, but on the on the other end of this story of, of people in Sri Lanka considering, you know, potentially getting on a boat in the future and, you know, 
the way the the people smugglers sort of use information about these cases to tempt those people to to do that that the nuance of the process and how difficult it's been might be lost and they just hold up a photo of this family you know potentially living back in a beautiful Queensland country town and say this could be you does that argument hold any weight for you the government's has repeatedly stated that they've stopped the boats so at the moment there's no boats arriving so there's no risk of people traveling to Australia by boat. I suppose the second thing is that the policy of causing sort of irreparable long-term harm to even even children, and, and it's been well documented in the media and, and by medical professionals about the harm that's been caused to these children by this long-term detention, causing harm to children as a deterrence to stop other people that potentially may try and come to Australia when, when I mean, if what they say is correct and they have stopped the boats, then it's not really a possibility. So, I mean, it's really just a, a, a complete moral failure of the Australian, of, of the government policy in this respect. That was Greg Hanson, a lawyer. Annika, you've interviewed immigration um, departmental officials. You've closely followed the politics of this whole issue. What do you make of this story and, and the situation of this family and, and the policy context surrounding it? Look, it might be difficult to hear, and this is something that um, people within the government claim, but importantly, also experts in this area in, I guess, the Immigration Department privately say that because some of the attention around the case, especially this one, is so high that, as you said during that interview, it, it does actually prevent them in being given any sort of reprieve, the government have to sort of say, stay strong, or they will be held up as an example of a family that has come here. And and it might seem like a terrible path, you know, for us in Australia, waiting 10 years and being in and out of detention and the uncertainty. But for many people around the world, it would be seen that as an open avenue, even if it did take up to 10 years. So I I don't think the people who are supporting this campaign, I I think they're doing a wonderful job and I don't think they they would want any sort of negative consequences from the work they're doing. But the problem does become the individual case versus the overall. We've seen a lot of that sort of argument during COVID, you know, individuals missing out on a lot of things, a lot of freedoms they would have liked. We're doing it for, for a greater policy, I guess. Uh, whether you agree with the overall policy of, of not allowing, you know, people to be settled here in Australia is a different argument. But if that's something the government wish to pursue, they really have to take these hardline approaches. It is a very hardline argument, though, and I think Angela Frederick's argument was an interesting one that we're, we're so many years down the track now and the policy has worked that the environment and the incentives for people to make that journey have really changed given how few people have been able to make it. So, you know, I get the logic of that hardline argument, but whether it really stacks up in the new context is something that I think many people would dispute. Mm. All right, tomorrow on The Briefing, we're taking you in-depth on the Brittany Higgins story and finding out what we've learned from it so far. Listener.